I want to begin this morning by reading from the final chapter of The Lord of the Rings. Relax. Later I'm going to talk about baseball, so there'll be some balance, okay? Um, but just, if you'll just go with me for a second, I promise this will be worth it. I hate that I have to say this, but spoiler alert. Um, I'm going to read from the end of it, right? So if you haven't read it, though it was the best-selling book of the 20th century, or seen the movie, which was one of the most Oscar-awarded films in history, you're, you're, I'm about to spoil the end for you, sorry. Um, after the Dark Lord Sauron has been defeated and the rightful king has returned to his throne and the hobbits have come home from this long journey and put right all that went wrong during the War of the Ring, there is a year of blessed restoration. That year, as the hobbits counted time in the Shire Reckoning, is the year 1420. That will be important in a second. Tolkien writes, Altogether, 1420 in the Shire was a marvelous year. Not only was there wonderful sunshine and delicious rain in due times and perfect measure, but there seemed something more, an air of richness and growth and a gleam of a beauty beyond that of mortal summers that flicker and pass upon this middle earth. All the children born or begotten that year, and there were many, were fair to see and strong, and most of them had a rich golden hair that had before been rare among hobbits, and no one was ill, and everyone was pleased, except those who had to mow the grass. <laughs> In the south farthing, the vines were laden, and the yield of leaf was astonishing, and everywhere there was so much corn that at harvest every barn was stuffed. The north farthing barley was so fine that the beer of the 1420 malt was long remembered and became a byword. Indeed, a generation later, one might hear an old gaffer in an inn, after a good pint of well-earned ale, put down his mug with a sigh. Ah, that was proper 1420, that was. Have you ever had a proper 1420 moment? Like what the professor describes. It's a moment when your heart just overflows with the goodness and gratitude, excuse me, overflows with gratitude for the goodness of something. And maybe it's something as simple as enjoying a long-missed favorite food or drink or something as profound as holding your first grandchild for the first time. But your heart knows this is the good stuff. We're going to talk about that today. Open your Bibles to John 2, 1. While you're doing that, let me uh, thank you again for being with us today. Grateful that you're here in the room and those watching online, thanks for logging in. And I want to remind you uh, that and let you know that Pi Day is coming up soon for all you math people. Uh, 3.14, March 14th is Pi Day. And so it's something fun that Chapel Rock has done over the last few years. Just a way to love on and bless the people who serve in our community. So there's a kiosk in the lobby where you can pick up a box that has a pie tin in it. And we're asking you to bring that back, fully loaded with a pie, um, on, on uh, March 12th or 13th. We will deliver those uh, over the next day or so, the missions team will, to various schools and firehouses in the area. Just a fun and practical way to love those who serve in our community. That's coming up soon. You can pick up your box in the lobby today. We're continuing our series through John's Gospel entitled, The Calling, today. And we're going to look at a time that Jesus gave his disciples a proper 1420 experience. All right? Um, 
Jesus has just called his first disciples near where John was baptizing in Judea and then taken them north to Galilee. He and his disciples are invited to a wedding in Cana in Galilee. Now we learn from John 21 verse 2 that Nathanael, who we talked about last Sunday, was from Cana. That's his hometown. So the text makes it clear that not only is Jesus invited, the disciples also get an invitation. So it's not just they're tagging along, right? They're, they're Jesus plus one. No, they were also invited. So this is a, there's some close relational connection here. Look with me at John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, pause real quick. Again, I mentioned before, John does different stuff with time, okay? Um, it's, like a, it's like a three or four day walk from Judea back up to Cana. So he's presented, like on one day, you know, John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then you've got this interaction that we talked about a couple weeks ago where, where Peter's like, you're the Messiah. And Nathaniel are like, you're the rabbi, you're the Messiah. And then on the third day, but they're all the way up in Galilee by this point, right? So this is the third day as John is presenting it, but chronologically some more time has, you know, gone between this, okay? On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples, notice they're also invited, had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now let's pause right there. There have been people, you know, good-hearted folks on on both sides of this who have tried to say that this was non-alcoholic. The study just does not bear that out. The Greek word is oinos. It's, it's literally the root of our word wine. That's, it meant, it, it meant the, a fermented beverage made from the juice of crushed grapes. That's what it meant then. That's what it means now. That was, now they watered it down, right? And, and so, but that's, that's what's going on here. There is a separate word in the New Testament, oinos neos, which gets translated new wine. That may be unfermented. And, and there's a specific word for that in the New Testament. That's not what's used here, okay? So this is, is wine like you would know it, all right? Typically 12 to 14% alcohol by volume. That's, that's what most wines are, okay? It's, that's, that's what they're serving. Mary says, they have no more wine. Jesus replies, woman, why do you involve me? Now we're going to come back to that because that's really significant. He says, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. I had an opportunity to go to Cana in 2016, and I took this picture. This is a stone water jar from Cana, right? I'm six feet tall. The top of that thing's about eye level. So they hold 30-ish gallons. It just depends. Um, you're like, how big is that? You know the black Rubbermaid trash bins? That's 30 gallons, 33 gallons. So it's about that big on the inside. These things are huge. Um, now, is this water jar from Cana one of the ones that was used in the miracle? I can give you a definitive answer. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It's from Cana. It's from the first century. This may have held miracle wine. I don't know, but that's what it would have looked like. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Notice John tells us this 
in retrospect. There's no like, there's no statement definitively like Jesus did this and pring, this, you know, and magic. No, it just, he just states it flatly as a fact. It was turned into wine. The master of the banquet did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. There's a reason for this. I'll press into that in a little bit. He calls him off to the side and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. There's a really significant wordplay going on here. I'll tell you what that is in a little bit. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now this text is a little bit difficult to apply directly. Like you're never going to be in a situation where this event is replicated. Right? It's a little tough to apply this to our lives. I heard about a story about a Sunday school teacher. She was teaching a group of third grade boys and they were going over this story. And she said, now children, what can we learn from this? And there's a long pause. And one of the boys says, well, if you're going to have a wedding, you better invite Jesus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's not wrong, right? I mean, he's not wrong. Uh, invite him to the marriage too. But I think there's more to it than that. I mean, certainly there's an application for us in what Mary says, right? Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever Jesus says. We'll, we'll talk about that. But I think we can go even further. Here's the big idea this morning. Obedience and imitation are not optional for Jesus' disciples. And both show that we've put our faith in him. Right? Obedience and imitation are not optional for Jesus' disciples. And both show that we've put our faith in him. Obedience, doing what Jesus said to do, and imitation, replicating the way he lived his life, are not optional for disciples of Jesus. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. If you don't obey Jesus and imitate Jesus, you don't really believe in Jesus. I'm going to say that again. If you don't obey Jesus and imitate Jesus, you don't really believe in Jesus. Now, are we going to do those things perfectly? No. No, we're broken by sin, and he wasn't. But that doesn't change the definition of discipleship. To believe in him, to really have faith in him, to trust him as Savior and Lord, is to obey him and to imitate him. What do disciples do? Two things. First of all, disciples do what Jesus says. Disciples do what Jesus says. That's Mary's command, right? Jesus is at the wedding, probably having a great time. Mary seems to have had some role in this. We don't know. It might have been a family connection. There might have been like she had a good reputation in the community and they were trusting her with this. Maybe Mary, uh, you know, we know that they had, she had a bunch of kids. And so she's like, hey, if you want to plan an event, give it to Mary because she knows how to manage. We don't know. It's all speculation. Uh, we really don't know how, why she's in a, seemingly in a place of authority there. Um, these are friends of Jesus' mother. He probably knew them too. Um, But they run out of wine. And and that would have scandalized the family. And I want to press into this for a little bit. This is a breach of ancient Middle Eastern codes of hospitality. Here in the West, our view of right and wrong tends to be driven by, by the idea of guilt and innocence. 
right? Our view of right and wrong is either you did it, you did the wrong thing and we can prove it in court or you didn't and we can, we can defend you in court. We tend to view right and wrong through that lens. In the Middle East and indeed in the Far East, they tend to view the, the, that right and wrong through the lens of honor and shame. You either have honor and you're, because you do the right thing or you have shame because you did the wrong thing. And those are almost like currencies that you can spend, okay? Here in this text, to run out of wine at a feast brings shame on the family. This is a, a massive, horrible thing, and these are probably friends of Joseph and Mary's, right? And so Mary comes to Jesus, and she basically says, do something. She'd never seen him perform a miracle, despite what some extra-biblical authors wrote about Jesus in his young years, like turning clay pigeons into real birds. It never happened. But he, she didn't know, like, he's he could do that, right? She just says, do something. Now, why would Mary do this? Because for 30 years, everything Mary ever gave Jesus got done on time, on budget, and with excellence. Because he's Jesus, right? It just, it was always done well. Everything was done right. And so she just has learned to trust her son. And so she says to the servants, just do whatever he tells you. Because she knows whatever I give to Jesus will be good. It'll be good. And look at how he responds. He says, literally, in Greek, what to you and to me, woman? Ah, wow. I don't know about how you talk to your mother, <laughs> but uh, if I talk like that to my mother, I would get slapped again. <laughs> I back talked her once and learned that lesson real quick. Um, here's the thing. What is happening here is that John is translating into Greek a Hebrew idiom that is found a number of times in the Hebrew Old Testament, which highlights the fact that if you really want to understand your New Testament, you have to be pretty well versed in the Old. The meaning of the phrase, what to you and to me, is flexible. It really depends on context. You could translate it, what do we have in common? You could translate it, why do you involve me? You could translate it, you can't tell me what to do. You could translate it, why do you turn to me? You could translate it, your concern is not mine. It's really flexible. And you're like, that sounds weird. But here's the thing. We have one in the way that we speak. If you're from Indiana, you know this, right? If you speak fluent Hoosier, you have an expression just like this. It's two words. You good. You know what I'm talking about? It depends entirely on how you say it, right? Because if someone is, is backing up, they're walking backwards and they walk into you, and they try, oh, I'm so sorry, you're good, right? It means it's okay, it's fine, don't worry about it, you know, I forgive you, right? Or, or if you're concerned about someone and they, they, they fall down and you walk, are, are, are you good, okay, right? Or if you want to be dismissive of somebody, you want to just send them on their way, like, hey, could you help? You're good. <laughs> It's the same words. It just depends on context and tone of voice, right? We, we, if you speak fluent Hoosier, you know that. The point in the text is that Jesus' statement to his mother, no matter how it's translated, it's not dismissive. It's not disrespectful. But what it is doing is changing the nature of their relationship. Up to this point, she had been his mother. She had been an authority figure in his life. Because without knowing it, 
she's asking him to start his redemptive mission. The first time he performs a miracle, the clock starts counting down to the cross. She doesn't realize that that's what she's asking. And so when he says, my hour has not yet come, he's saying he knows that the second he starts, it's not about calling disciples. It's about once he exerts the power of God to begin the redeeming creation to be what it should be, the countdown to the cross starts. And so he's just saying, I think it's almost, he says it to his mother, but he's really asking his father, is this time? Is it now? And so what he says is not dismissive. It's not disrespectful, but it is changing the nature of their relationship. He's, he's, he's moving her from the category of mother to the category of disciple. Because she, up to this point, she had been his mother. But once that redemptive mission starts, now she is his disciple. And the Gospel of John, all through the Gospel, especially later at the cross, and indeed in Matthew and Mark and Luke, Mary is always presented as being an ideal disciple. What does she say to the angel when the angel comes and tells her she's going to have a baby? Let it be to me as you have said. The text always presents her as an ideal disciple. And so her response when a challenging situation comes up is this. Just do what Jesus says. That's what disciples do, y'all. That's the way that God has designed us to work. When you are faced with a challenge, the first response should be, just do what Jesus says. And you're like, I don't know what Jesus says. Dude, they literally wrote it down. I don't know, maybe you use a Bible app or, or you have a paper Bible or, or not. I would encourage you, if you don't have at least one way to do this, is to get a red letter Bible. Th- this one has red letters. It's not perfect, and sometimes, like, older versions have John 3.16. They have Jesus saying that. Newer ones have John, the author, writing it. It's not, it's not an exact science, though clearly when it says Jesus said, like, you know right? Because it just helps your eyes see it. And if you don't know what to do in life and you're not reading what Jesus says, you might want to reconsider how you're living your life. Just disciples do what Jesus says. You see, the grammar of verse 11 is also significant. When the text says his disciples believed in him, this is, I'm reading from the 2011 NIV I'd, Growing up, I read the 1984 NIV. And so that's what, when I, I memorized verses I tend to know those I I do think that the 84 is better there because the 1984 says that they put their faith in him and I think it's a better expression of, of what's happening here the grammar would indicate one way to translate this is they absolutely began to believe in him at that point they absolutely put their faith in him at that point John is emphasizing that it's this event this sign when Jesus provides the good stuff that his disciples went from, wow, this is a great teacher, to, wow, this is the Lord. They begin to trust him at that. And they're going to wrestle with that in various ways over the next three years, some more than others, right? Um, but it's at a wedding where Jesus provides the good stuff that they begin to trust him. And when you begin to trust Jesus, you put your faith in him, it follows that you should naturally do what he says to do. Spring training, Major League Baseball started this week there's a man named Claire to guess his name is Claire I don't know what his parents were thinking but they named him Claire Claire DeGraff is a Christian businessman and church elder from Grand Rapids Michigan and he wrote a book the 10 second rule following Jesus made simple notice it does not say following Jesus made easy there's a big difference <laughs> just because it's 
Simple doesn't mean it's easy. Um, And the premise of the book is this. Whenever you come to something Jesus says to do, obey in less than 10 seconds without overthinking it. Just just do it. When When you come to instruction from Jesus, just obey. Don't think about it, just do it. Just go. And he talks, he kind of presses into, here's how to do that in your life. And he uses this analogy, and I thought it was a pretty good analogy. You know, like I said, I'm more of a Lord of the Rings guy than sports guy, but I played baseball as a kid. And he talks about, um, like, playing baseball with Jesus. And he says, I have this vision of playing baseball with Jesus, and, like, it's just me and him on the field. I'm the pitcher, he's the catcher. And there's, there's pl- other players in the dugout and people in the stands but it's just me and Jesus on the field. And he's the catcher, and he gets into his crouch, and he gives me a sign, fastball. And I shake my head, nah, I don't want to throw a fastball. And so he gives me another sign, throw a slider. I don't want to feel like throwing a slider today. And he gives me another sign. And it's, I'm like, I'm looking at the stands, and I'm looking at the dugout, and I'm just not feeling it, and I shake my head. And Jesus just puts his hand back in his mitt. Throw whatever you want. So I do. And I wonder why there's no team spirit. What if we begin to live like this? What if we followed the 10 second rule with Jesus? Jesus says do something. Within 10 seconds, obey. Don't think about it. Don't overthink it. Just, okay. Why? Because it's Jesus. He died on the cross in your place for your sin. You get to go to heaven because of him. Just do what he said. Disciples do what Jesus says to do. I just want to encourage you to try that this week. Just as you live your daily life, just say, I'm just going to obey Jesus within 10 seconds without overthinking it. Give it a shot. See what happens. I'd love to hear some testimonies next Sunday. When you come back, you're like, you will not believe what happened. And I'd be like, yes, I will. Because disciples are called to obey Jesus, but that's not all. Disciples also give like Jesus gives. Disciples give like Jesus gives. Did you know that wine snobs generally are faking it? You know this? Frederick Brochet of the University of Bordeaux conducted, and this is Bordeaux in France, right? They conducted a series of tests on unsuspecting wine experts. In the first test, 54 wine connoisseurs were asked to compare a red and a white wine. Should be easy, right? Wrong. It was actually the same wine. Half of the bottles were just white wine dyed red. (laughs) None of these 54 experts could tell. No idea. They're going on and on about how the white is light and how the red is full-bodied, and it's the same thing. (laughs) In another test, experts were asked to compare two different bottles of wine. One was an expensive Grand Cru. I don't know what that is. I'm not a, I don't know that world. Like, that's, but reportedly, I mean, I did a little Googling. You can't, like, the starting price on one of those bottles is a thousand bucks. But you can get into five figures really fast for that. Um, these are very expensive wines. The other was a, a, what the, like a table wine. You go to a decent Italian place and they just bring you a complimentary glass. Like you don't have to ask, they just bring it. Is that. Right? So it's, not, it's not super high end, right? And they said they had a bottle of the Grand Cru and a bottle of the table wine and they asked him to tell the, and they went on and on and on about how one's different. And one's, it was the same wine. 
different bottles. So if it's so hard for the experts to tell the difference, how can we believe that the master of the banquet in the text wasn't just faking it? It's worth asking. I guarantee your skeptical atheist friends will ask. How do we know? I think we know because this is literally the opposite of Brochet's experiment. They, they expected there to be a difference. It was the same thing. In this case, he expected it to be the same, but it was different. In fact, it was better. He could, it, it, he could tell it was better because it actually was better. Better quality. It was richer. It was the good stuff. The value of this wedding gift was, was huge. And I, I want to press into this because I think it's really important. On some level, there's a monetary value, right? This is super high quality. There are hundreds of gallons of wine. Right? Possibly, potentially almost 200 gallons of wine. So there's a monetary value to this. But it's more than that. Because I told you earlier that the whole culture rides on honor and shame. Right? So, as a result, it's not just the value of the wine, which was really good, high-quality stuff. It's also that it, they went from serving good stuff to really good stuff at the wedding. Now, remember, the Romans came in 40 years after this happened, destroyed Jerusalem. I don't know how long this family lived in Cana. It might have been a couple generations. It might have been 40 generations. They might still be there. I don't know. This part of the world, they have a long memory. If you want to know why they're fighting now, it's because they have a long memory. So imagine this, for generation after generation after generation, people tell the story, do you remember the Jacobson family? Let's just make up a name. Do you remember the Jacobson family and that one wedding where their wine got better as the feast went on? Dude, yes, that, because that's how they talk in first century Israel. They say, dude, um, wow, dude, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe, I mean, Year after year after year, people tell that story. Jesus not only gives them this incredible value of, of just the monetary value of the wine, he gives them a massive stockpile of honor. It's the good stuff. See, there's a wordplay in verse 10 that we don't see in English. The word translated choice and the word translated best, it's the same word in the original language. It's the normal New Testament word for good. And the word cheap means inferior or low quality. So the master of the banquet, it's like he's saying, now remember, he calls him aside. Why? Honor and shame. He doesn't want to admit in front of everybody that they started with the cheap stuff. <laughs> like, that's bad, right? So he calls the groom over. He's like, hey, um, I, don't, I don't know how to tell you this, but the wine's better. What? Yeah, it's better. Like, I, I don't know what, what, what's, what'd you do? I don't do anything. What are you talking about? I don't know, but it's better. Well, just serve it. You know, I mean, like, he calls him over and he's like, um, people normally serve the good stuff and then the not as good stuff. But I've never met anyone who's not as good stuff as everybody else's good stuff. And so that means your good stuff must be like the best stuff. When Jesus gives, he gives the good stuff. The servants at the wedding, he tells them to fill the jars to the brim. Did you catch that? 30 gallons, 33 gallons. How many times, church, let me ask you, how many times do we undercut the blessing of God because of our half-hearted obedience and because we don't give like Jesus gives? Some of you are sitting there thinking, I bet he's talking about money. No, not yet. <laughs> let me give you one example. First Sunday in May this year marks 25 years in full-time ministry for me. 
been doing this a little while. And I've sat in my office over the years and counseled couples who are going through a hard time in their marriage. They're really struggling. And I'll say to the man, well, this is what the Bible says about how to be a married man. Are you doing all these things? No. And I'll say to the woman, well, this is what the Bible says about how to be a married woman. Are you, are you doing all these things? And she'll say, no. I'm like, why are we talking? You, you're, not, you're not giving your best to each other. God told you how to live this life. And listen, I get personality differences, and there's a whole, this is not that simple. I know that. But I'm saying let's at least start there. Let's at least begin with that, that framework, that base work, and go from there. And yeah, like, let's just, tell you what, I'm going to send you home. You, you do what Jesus said to do in your marriage this week, and then we'll see. When we give our best from a framework of loving obedience to Jesus, that's when we get the good stuff. He calls us to give like he gives. And I'm challenging you today. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, are you giving the way Jesus gives? Or are you giving the cheap stuff? And some of you might be sitting there thinking, I bet he's talking about money now. Yes, now you're right. But it's not just that. I mean, everything we have, I, appreciate, I didn't get to hear uh, Daniel's message this time. I was teaching our wired class, but um, in first service, he, he brought this out. Everything we have is a gift from God. The breath in your lungs is on loan from God. Everything we have is his. And so, yeah, this pertains to our wealth. And there are a lot of ways that you can give your best that way. You know, there's a QR code in your bulletin. You can go to chapelrock.org give. There are trays on the ushers' tables. As you leave, you can place your offering in there. You can bring or mail a check into the office. And one other way that we don't talk about a lot, but is, is really significant, and someone's forethought really helped us out at the end of 2022, you could put Chapel Rock in your will. That's what Debbie and I have done. When, when we go, we, we set up a trust. Um, we like the idea of being able to give a double tithe even when we leave this world. And so 20% of all of our assets are going to get distributed. Ozark Christian College is getting some. Chapel Rock, other churches that I've served. TCM, I think, is in there. It, it just, it goes. So you guys, you get some. <laughs> My kids are right in here. 20 bucks. I don't know. Um, you know, no, more than that. But, I mean, you could do that, Right? The other thing, and this, and, and now listen, that's paperwork, and you've got to get a lawyer involved, and, and, and that's, it's good, and you should do it, but it's, it's, it's heavily involved. Something else you can do that probably is just a phone call or an email is to call your insurance agent and say, I'd like to add Chapel Rock as an additional beneficiary of my life insurance policy. It's literally a phone call, but it made a difference, and someone's forethought, one of your fellow members who's with the Lord now back in 2022 allowed us to get out of debt fast. Paul, was it, was it this year we were supposed to pay off? Was that 25 or 24? 2025, next year. So we were supposed to be out of debt next year, but we were, we were able to get out of debt in 22 because somebody did this. So you could do that. But it's not just even with money. It's how you spend your time. To give God your first and your best. Maybe for some of you, that's first thing in the morning. You wake out of bed, your feet hit the floor, and you're, you're on. Right? Your brain just fires up, and you're ready to rock. And so, like, spend that time with God. If it means getting up an extra 10 minutes early, I bet you could pull it off. 
Or maybe for some of you, you're like, dude, it takes me till noon to feel fully awake. Okay, at the end of the day, if that's your best time, give that to the Lord, right? Because when Jesus gives, he gives the good stuff. So you give your good stuff in terms of time. And in terms of the way that you serve here, there's a, a sheet at the information center about various ways to serve at Chapel Rock. Are you giving the good stuff with your time? Maybe in just the way that you disciple someone else and you sit down with someone and you help someone who's not as far along on the road as you to come to faith in Jesus. Listen, I wouldn't surprise me to know that all of us have different definitions for what we would call proper 1420. For some of us, it's that first cup of coffee in the morning. For others, it might be a cup of something more akin to what the hobbits were drinking in the Lord of the Rings. For my wife, it's a chili dog. <laughs> I have her permission to share this story. Back in 2010, we'd been homeschooling a little while, and, and Deb heard about a one-day like homeschooling conference and uh, used curriculum table. Well, that'll any homeschooling mom, she'll light up when you say used curriculum table. So uh, we drove to Champaign, Illinois, uh, to go to this church. And we didn't really know Champagne real well. I still don't, but um, I'm more familiar with it now. But we were, we were driving through town, and I'm just driving right in the van, and she's sitting next to me, and all of a sudden, she gasps. And it's like, <laughs> and I'm looking around for the Mack truck that must be bearing down on us, about to kill us all in a fire explosion for her to react that way. And I'm like, what, 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 what? And she says, there's a wiener schnitzel. And I'm just trying to be like Jesus. And so I'm like, woman! Um. <laughs> See, they have lots of these in Southern California where Deb's grandparents lived. And she's got real fond memories of going to visit her grandparents in Southern California and going to wiener schnitzel with them and getting a chili dog. They don't have a lot of those in the Midwest, um, but there's one in Champaign, Illinois. And so this was an occasion, right? Fast forward six years, North American Christian Convention is in Anaheim, California. It's been a long week. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those, a lot of going and doing, and we had an Airbnb close to the convention center, so Deb was still doing normal mom stuff, right? Making breakfast and lunch and dinner for everybody, and, and by the end of the week, you know, convention and still doing normal life, and it was hard, you know, and so she's like, I'm tired. I said, let's go out for dinner, because I had been doing a little research on the sly and found a wiener schnitzel. So we drove there, and we pull into the lot, and she's smiling, but her eyes are shining. And... <laughs> We walk into the place, and she immediately starts crying. And I know it's not the onions on the chili dog. All the memories of being there with her grandparents come flooding back, right? And it's a warm Southern California night. And if you've ever been to Southern California, it has its own thing at night. It just does. And we're there, and she's bawling. And the kids are like, why is mom crying? Is everything okay? Is the food not good? Like, what? What's going on? I said, guys, I don't remember exactly what I said. It was something like, you know, this place just reminds your mom of her grandparents who are with Jesus now. These are happy tears. I look at her, those are happy tears, right? Like she's like, okay, yes. okay, good. And in between teary bites, she enjoyed her chili dog. And in that moment, her heart was just overflowing with gratitude for the goodness of that simple meal. For her, that was a proper 1420 moment. That was the good stuff. 
Now, Jesus doesn't promise that this is going to be normal for his disciples, at least not in their everyday life. But he does promise that if we obey what he says and give like he gives, that we get to glimpses of that good stuff here and that one day we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven and we save up for the wedding feast that will never end. You see, in the great messianic vision of Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, we read, On this mountain... The Lord God Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. Yes, that's a metaphor. What for? Keep going. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like the good stuff. I don't want to miss that. So if you tell me that obedience and imitation are not optional for Jesus' disciples and that both show we put our faith in him, then that is my calling. To obey and imitate Jesus. And I invite you to share it today. You might be here this morning and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. I want to urge you to do that. In just a second, we're going to stand and sing a song together. And if you're ready to name him as Savior and Lord and know that one day you get the good stuff and you come. If you're ready to yield your life to Christ and be baptized, receive him as as Lord over your life and, and live this kind of life of imitating and obeying Jesus, then you come. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, well, I did that a long time ago, but uh, my imitation is kind of suffering lately. Okay. I, I think you're gonna, I want you to do business with God while we sing. Maybe you need to go even a step further and tell somebody. If you want us to pray with you, we'd love to do that. Maybe you have another need completely unrelated. We'd be happy to pray with you. But you might want to just grab somebody next to you and say, hey man, I haven't been imitating Jesus the way I need to. Would you, would you hold me accountable for this? And, and talk to them about it. And take that step of discipleship and following Jesus. Maybe you're like, I don't even know what that looks like, but I do kind of would like to talk to somebody. Under the yellow awning is our next step room. One of our leaders will be in there. I want to encourage you to go there, and they'd love to have that conversation with you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together, and you respond as God leads you today.